I was thinking as I started this, as I was thinking about this passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at that. I was uh, thinking we should talk about resolutions because, you know, middle of June is when you think about those a lot. So, <laughs> and as I was thinking about it, it's just because resolutions are all something we make. We're all, we all choose to want to resolve to do something, um, be it at New Year's or in the middle of June if you feel like it. Um, but the way we make resolutions and the kinds of resolutions we make, they can be really, really silly. Uh, I, I was just thinking about the resolutions you hear about at the new year, and you're just like, what's that going to do for you? It's, and then you hear in February, everyone's like, oh, I stopped that resolution. It was, I couldn't keep up with it. And I looked up some of the most common resolutions people make during the new year, and uh, here's some that I found from Google. So super reliable. But we have get healthy, get organized, live life to the fullest, learn new hobbies, spend less and save more, travel, read more. Uh, and it could go on and on. You just get do more of this, do more of that. But those resolutions are super vague, aren't they? Let's, let's get healthy. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? I'll stop eating um, marshmallows. <laughs> gets me a little bit healthier, right? Fulfilling <laughs> that resolution. Or I was just thinking about the get organized one, and my idea of organization is probably way different than an engineer's idea of organization. <laughs> Mine is let's put it away in a drawer and ignore it, and we're organized. <laughs> but I don't think that's get organized. Um, we make resolutions, we don't really plan it out or give a lot of detail or have motivations for why we do it. We just think, well, I should try this out. I should make this resolution and see if I can carry it out. But then usually we give up on it as well. And I was thinking about this and I was really thinking, it's good for us to make resolutions if we follow through on those resolutions. We should be settled on something and determined firmly to do something, to carry something out, whether it is if you do want to get organized or get healthy. If you do, it, I don't think that's a problem to have those resolutions, but there are better things to resolve as well. Some of the best resolves I've ever read, and I hope some of you have, re some of you have read them too, come from Jonathan Edwards. If you don't know who Edwards is, he was a uh, 17th century Puritan in America, just phenomenal theologian. And when he, starting at 19 years old, Edwards began to make resolves to bring his life under control for the glory of God. Listen to the first resolution Edwards made. He said, Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit, and pleasure. In the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, however so many and however so great. Uh, and that's his, that's his first resolution. He wrote 70 of these. And compare that to today's resolution of get healthy. Uh, a pretty different idea of resolutions I think we have. Jonathan Edwards even had resolutions on what he spoke about. His 34th resolution says, Resolved in narrations never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity. Verity meaning truth. Edwards was resolved to speak the truth and the truth alone. He wasn't going to tell any falsehood in anything he said. And I was thinking about Edwards' resolutions, and I was like, this guy is phenomenal. What 19-year-old is thinking the way Edwards is thinking? 
But I also know Edwards was not the first Christian to make resolutions. Christian resolve dates back even to the founding of the church. And we are going to see one instance tonight in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, the passage we'll be looking at. What we see in this passage is Paul's resolve in his ministry to the Corinthians to proclaim to them the way of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was set on this message. This, he was entirely resolved to say it and say it alone. So if you have your Bible, open it up. If you haven't already opened it to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Tonight we're going to be looking at verses two, or chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So follow along with me as I read these. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come pro- proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the last couple of weeks, we've gone through a big part of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, We've looked in that chapter, we've seen comparison being made between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. In verses 20 through 25 of chapter 1, Paul has made it clear that God has made the world's wisdom foolish and that his wisdom is far greater than any wisdom in this world. Further, in verse 23, we can see that preaching Christ appears to be a stumbling block and foolishness to, to the world. And to quote, he says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. God's wisdom seen in Christ is far greater than the world's wisdom. In verses 26 through 31, Paul reminded the Corinthian believers, and by extension us, of their calling. We remember that God chooses lowly and unwise people in the world's eyes. And that this is ultimately for one purpose, one purpose alone. Look at verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul, Paul reminds us, so that the reason for your salvation, as it, is written, let, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Salvation is for the glory of God alone. And we see that in God's wisdom over man's wisdom. Because as Deontay taught us last week, man's wisdom seeks to receive glory for itself rather than see God's glory. And that's the context we have as we're jumping into this. Paul comparing the world's wisdom that the Corinthians are easily falling into with God's wisdom far greater than anything the world has to offer seen in the, in the cross of Christ. And he's, he gave us one example in their calling. He reminds them, don't forget how you were called. You were wise, you, unwise, you were weak, you were foolish, you were nothing even compared to the world and yet you were called to see the glory of God. And now let me remind you of my coming, is what he's doing here in chapter 2. He's going to remind them, even my message to you wasn't in human wisdom. It wasn't dependent on human wisdom, and it wasn't to display human wisdom. And he does this in three ways. He's going to tell the Corinthians the message he preached to them. Second, he's going to tell them the method he used to preach that message. And lastly, he's going to tell them the motive he had during his ministry. And then that's the outline we'll follow tonight as, you look at, as we look at this passage. It's there on the notes, easily written out for you. And I hope that it's clear throughout that that's really what Paul's getting at. So as we dive into that, we have to first understand what was Paul's message that to the world was 
unwise, but really was wise. So, look with me. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. These two verses really make it very clear what Paul's message was in two different ways. First of all, he states that it was the testimony of God. See that in verse 1. He says, he really is saying, I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God to you, not in this certain way, but I did proclaim it. And then secondly, he says he, he knew only Christ, Christ Jesus crucified. That was his message, those two things. So let's, under, let's really understand what Paul's getting at here. First, let's talk about this, word, this phrase, testimony of God. He came proclaiming to them the testimony of God. His teaching was centered around this is what he means. And another way you could even say testimony of God it could be testimony from God. This isn't to say exactly that this is God's testimony, though we could say this is God's testimony. But we're really getting at the origin of the testimony. It came from God himself. God revealed to Paul the message that he was to preach. In Acts chapter 9, if you could jump back there with me really quickly, we're going to see that this was God's purpose from the beginning of Saul's, Saul's salvation who became Paul. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 9, Saul is being converted. And in, chapter, or in verses 10 through 16, Ananias, a man in Damascus, has a vision from the Lord about seeking out Saul and speaking to him about the Lord because God has told him to. And so look with me at verses 10 through 16. We read, Now there was a, a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he, su he must suffer for the sake of my name. God's purpose in choosing Paul was to set him apart to deliver this message. Note, especially verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he, has he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was specifically chosen for this purpose, to declare this testimony from God to the people. So what we have here is Paul saying, I came proclaiming this testimony that I received to you. This was my, this was my message. This was what I came with. And so Paul was constrained to preach that and that alone. There was nothing else he could preach. He had this message from God. And since he had this message from God, that's why he came proclaiming it. And that's why he says in verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because this testimony Paul had received was from God concerning Christ, there was nothing else. All he knew was Christ Jesus crucified. That was the message of salvation he was bringing to Corinth and everywhere he went. He was solely set on that as his purpose. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this. I know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was curious, well, what did Paul actually, like, what are some of the examples of things he taught 
to the Corinthian church. And so I looked through the book of 1 Corinthians. I read through the whole thing and was looking at what Paul said he taught. And that's, that's a really neat thing to do is look for something like that throughout a whole book. And he mentions it time and time again, what he taught to the Corinthian church. In chapter 1, verse 17, we looked at that already. Paul says he was sent to preach the gospel. In the same chapter, in verse 23, he says he preached Christ crucified. We see in ours that he proclaimed the testimony of God in the verses we're looking at now in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 13, he says he imparted spiritual truths taught by the Spirit. In chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he describes it as laying the foundation, namely Jesus Christ. In chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says he taught his ways in Christ as in every church. In chapter 11, verse 23, he says he delivered to the Corinthians what he received from the Lord. They're specifically referring to the Lord's Supper, a remembrance of Jesus' death. In chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says he taught that Christ died and was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. And in chapter 15, verse 15, he says he testified that God raised Christ from the dead. And that's just a survey. That wasn't, I, I, there's more in 1 Corinthians of what he said he taught them. But just a little nugget throughout that book. And what do we hear about? Paul taught Christ. He taught them Christ and the, his, the, his ways in Christ. Paul's message of salvation was the gospel of Christ and the impl its implication in our lives, both for salvation and then for obedience to Christ for his glory. The wonderful truths of Jesus Christ's personal work were Paul's focus. He did not depart from it. And in that we see Paul's resolve, don't we? He was set on this. He saw that as the only thing he could teach them. He saw it as the, God's means of saving sinners, and that was what he had to proclaim to people who needed salvation. Are you like Paul? Do you know and believe that Jesus Christ was sent from God for us? That he lived a perfect life and died in our place, suffering the penalty we rightly deserved? Because if you do believe that, then you should be like Paul. You should be constrained by this message that we've received because you know there's nothing else to proclaim. Paul knew the way to salvation. And Paul said, this is all I have to give to you, the way to salvation. What other message do we have but peace with God through Christ? What other message should we bring to the world? What other message is worth bringing to the world, really? We should be constrained. We should be resolved. That's why I titled this, Resolved to Preach the Gospel. You and I, we need to be like this. We need to be like Paul, taking his example. But not only do we need to have this message and proclaim it, we need to know how to rightly proclaim it. Because we, we have that question, well, how do I share this? How do I tell someone the gospel of salvation in Christ? Well, Paul gave us an example of how he did it. He shows us how to preach the gospel back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So jump back there. And he gives us both positives and negatives for how to preach the gospel. He gives us negatives by saying, I didn't do it this way. And he gives us positives by saying, I did do it this way. We see an example of this isn't a good way to do it but this is the way to do it. So we can know, man, this is how you preach the gospel. This is how you share the gospel with another person. 
This is what, how we proclaim what we believe. So look back with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, is where he really starts to explain how he preached the gospel message. Paul says in verse, verse 1, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's already making his distinction between the world and himself. He's not going to be like the world. He's not going to bring lofty speech and wisdom, which that kind of speech is demonstrating the superiority of the speaker. Paul could even have said this, I have not come as a superior person in speech or wisdom. I didn't come toting my greatness and saying, look how good of a speaker I am. Look how wise I am. I didn't come like that. Paul's words were not lofty because Paul did not want to demonstrate his personal greatness to the Corinthian church or any church. Remember, we saw in chapter 1 that God is making foolish the wisdom of the world and that those called were not wise. If this is the case, why would Paul want in any way to prove his own wisdom? Paul's message was an ordinary language. He didn't try to puff it up in such a way that people wanted to hear him preach. Paul knew this message is not about me, and so I'm going to preach in a way that doesn't exalt myself. I think sometimes, too often, we're like, man, did you hear that guy's sermon? He preached so well. He was so eloquent. And it's good to want to preach well, to say something clearly, at least. But if the focus is on the person who's preaching, then we miss the point. Our focus needs to be on Christ so that the hearer's focus goes to Christ. Whether you're speaking to one person or a group, whether you're on campus sharing or just sharing with a family member, turn the attention away from you and turn it towards Christ. But not only does Paul want to demonstrate that his preaching was not in superiority of his own wisdom, Paul also wants to make it clear that he didn't try to persuade people with words of wisdom. You see that in verse 4. Jump down there with me. I know we're kind of bouncing around, but... It's kind of the way the text seems to go as he bounces around. He says in verse 4, My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, my speech and my message were not in persuasive words of wisdom through man. He wasn't going to demonstrate his own greatness, and he wasn't going to use worldly wisdom to persuade the Corinthians either. I want to be clear here, though, that Paul, Paul is not saying he wasn't trying to be persuasive. We're going to look at that in a second. Paul tried to persuade people. But he didn't try to persuade people with worldly wisdom. That's not the way to bring someone to Christ. Jump back again to Acts chapter 18 now. I know we're kind of flipping around a little bit, but it's good to see what actually happened. Acts 18 is when Paul goes to Corinth. It's probably a good place to look if you want to know what Paul did when he went to Corinth. <laughs> so... There in Acts chapter 18, we're going to look at the first four verses, verses 1 to 4. Luke writes, saying, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And especially verse 4, look at this. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Paul's there persuading. He's reasoning with them, but not with man's wisdom. He didn't want to be marked by that, but he wanted to be marked by persuasiveness using the testimony of God that we already talked about. 
listen, Paul didn't want human methods to get in the way of the gospel. That's what he's getting at when he uses these negatives. He's, he doesn't want human methods to be in the way. That could include speech that uses human wisdom to exalt ourself or to try to be convincing and sneaky in some weird way or using some kind of attractive method, drawing people in and then bait and switch. You know, think of all that. Think of all those bait and switch evangelism techniques. Let's have a big concert, bring everyone in, and then in the middle of concert, bam, gospel message. Didn't see that one coming, did you? <laughs> Maybe it's effective. Maybe that brings someone to Christ, but why? Let's just go evangelize. Just go tell someone the gospel. Don't worry about bringing them to a big concert. That doesn't do anything besides let people hear good music. People buy into this all the, all the time, not even with just that, but in other ways too. People think we need some big-name Christian to inspire people to follow Christ. You hear it all the time. If only we had LeBron James. Wow, he would convince people. If only Tom Brady was a Christian. The GOAT himself, greatest football player of all time, would convince people to be a Christian. <laughs> right? If only we had Floyd Mayweather, the guy who loves money now but then turned to Christ if he would, would bring so many people to Christ. That would be neat. And I would love to see those three men come to Christ. That would be extraordinary. But God doesn't need them. We don't need them to share the gospel. We don't need them to draw them in and say, look, Floyd Mayweather's a Christian. You should be a Christian. Look, LeBron James is a Christian. You should be a Christian. That doesn't convince anyone. Further, we think, oh, if only we had intellectuals. What if Richard Dawkins became a Christian? What a testimony that would be. It would be. But we don't need Dawkins. We don't need some people who the world thinks are the smartest men around to be Christians. That wasn't Paul's method. He didn't rely on human wisdom, strength, or anything else. We don't need to rely on human wisdom, strength, or anything else. Rather, in 1 Corinthians 2... Back there in our text, Paul preaches contrary to the way the world would want the message proclaimed. So we've already seen the negative. We've seen what he taught. But let's see what, how t Paul actually did teach. First of all, we see Paul's stature, him, just the way he held himself before the Corinthians. In verse 3, Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That doesn't sound convincing already. <laughs> If you just hear that, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. You're like, oh, great, we're going to have a good speaker tonight. <laughs> but there's a reason why Paul came like that. Prior to coming to Corinth, Paul was beaten and imprisoned in Philippi. He was ran out of both Thessalonica and Berea and scoffed at and mocked in Athens. Do you think Paul was feeling encouraged by this point in his ministry? Likely, there's a good chance his weakness was from, from some from some physical condition brought about by being beaten in Philippi. Or maybe he's just a weak, small guy and just not an impressive dude by any means. Either way, there's not a lot of impressiveness in Paul himself. And there's probably some fear on his part that the message won't be received in Corinth and he'll be run out of this city as well. He's been run out of four different cities in, in a couple different ways and he's not seeing as much fruit as you like. But he held on. He continued to preach even though he was like this. Even though he's weak, fearful, and trembling, he goes on to preach. And it's incredible the way it works. Look, look at verse 4 now. He says, In my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but 
in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. The message may not have been persuasive by human words of wisdom, and Paul himself may not have looked like a very persuasive guy. But Paul's proclamation of the gospel was a demonstration of the Spirit and power, and in that there is persuasiveness. Rather than attempting to trust in men and seeking to see some results from human methods or wisdom, Paul preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. He relied on not his own strength, but God's strength to preach this message. But that does bring up the question, what does it mean to preach in demonstration of the Spirit and power? Because I'm sure we'd all like to be able to share the gospel in Spirit and power. But it's kind of like, that seems kind of vague to us now. What does that mean? Is it charismatic? Is it just some fa like crazy experience happening? I, I don't think so. I don't think that's what Paul means. Rather, Paul means that the Spirit had given him the message to proclaim. And rather than coming up with his own eloquent and wise method of proclamation, hoping to see some kind of results from his own work, Paul used the very words the Spirit had given him. The Word of God, believe it or not. The, the Bible is what he used. And in that, there's demonstration of Spirit and power. One more time, flip back to Acts 18. We're going back there again. I should have told you to keep a finger there, but I didn't. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I heard that, Trevor. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, back in Acts 18, we're going to start in verse 5. And it says this, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Paul used the word. It says he was occupied with it. This was his method. He's like, well, here, I have scripture. I have the Old Testament. I'll use that. Again, verse, verse 11, it, he details out some more of his time there. And then in verse 11, it says, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A year and a half, 18 months, Paul was there teaching the word of God as he focused on the message of Jesus Christ crucified. And so we start to get an idea of how this was a demonstration of the Spirit and power. Is He's using the Word of God, something the Spirit wrote. And while he's doing that, he's not trying to be lofty with his speech. He's not trying to think of ways that human wisdom would demonstrate this gospel. He's with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. And while he's teaching the Word of God, you know what happens after, during this year and a half? A church starts. A church was formed in Corinth. A body of believers is found there during Paul's ministry. When the word of God is faithfully taught, as Paul did, the Spirit will be at work. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. I love this quote. Charles Spurgeon said this, The power that is in the gospel does not lie in eloquence of the preacher, otherwise men would be the converters of souls, nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it would consist in the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. There is demonstration of spirit and power when the word of God is faithfully preached and proclaimed. Isn't that good to know? It is for me. You and I don't have to come up with some fancy way to preach the gospel, to share it with someone else. We don't have to be like, man, i got to think of a new way to share the gospel. It's been pretty dry lately. 
No, we don't need to water it down. We don't need to spice it up in order to be effective in proclaiming the gospel. We just need to share the word of God. It is sufficient to do the work. We can have a great trust in the Bible that it is effective, that the Holy Spirit will use the word of God to bring people to, to God. Listen to this wonderful promise from Isaiah that God gives regarding his word. In Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, we're promised this, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish, accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God has promised that his word would go out, that it would be effective because he has a purpose for it. If we could paraphrase this verse, we could just say, just like rain and snow water the ground, God's word does it what he intends it to do. It has a purpose. It goes out and it brings forth fruit as it saves people. So what it comes down to this is accurately and appropriately using the word of God allows the spirit of God to work in people's hearts. When we teach them what the scriptures actually say, God's spirit works in the lives of others, either to harden their heart or soften it so that they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's our hope for the spirit of God through the word to do is to bring people to Christ. This brings us to the question of why do we proclaim the testimony of God? Why do we proclaim Christ crucified seeking to do it in a demonstration of spirit and power as we teach and speak about the word of God. Well, Paul gives us the reason in verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 2. Back there one more time. Look at verse 5. The motive Paul has. So that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is important. This is Paul's reason for this whole, whole message he has. This is his reason for preaching. This is his reason for preaching in a certain way. Paul does not want to see people's faith in men. Paul wanted to get away from that. Rather, Paul wants to see the Corinthians put their faith in the power of God. This motivation is the complete opposite of anything in this world, guys. And this is the motivation we need to have. If you think about anything, any reason a speaker does anything, it's not for this motive, if he's from the world. Even during Paul's time, there were public speakers going from city to city, speaking in public places, a lot like Paul was doing. But these orators had an entirely different motive. These speakers were seeking glory for themselves. In an article I read, I learned that one philosopher called these orators magicians, imitators of realities, and the guild of false workers and jugglers. So he's already like, these people are bad news. They're not testifying to any truth. The article goes on to say that the magician, the magic and seductive influences of oratory on the audience was this philosopher's deep concern. He was to equate them with the Egyptians of Moses' day who engaged in tricks of the trade and deceptions. They were experts, decoying, charming, and bewitching hearers. He laments that in the early decades of the first century, so same time as Paul, city after city was being won over by these orators and the whole world was honoring them. That's not different from what we have now. People go around speaking. We have motivational speakers. We have 
all kinds of speaking things going on that you hear about and why. So the people are like, wow, that guy is smart. That guy has something good to say. That was neat. I want to be like that guy. Guys, Paul's motive is entirely opposite of this. These speakers are after public reputation, money, and followers, and all sorts of praise for themselves. Not so with Paul. He was concerned with the souls of those who heard them, who heard him, and that they would have faith, not in Paul, but in the power of God. And when Paul says this, that he intends for their faith to rest in the power of God, he has a very specific thing in mind, which is Jesus Christ crucified. The message, the person the message is about, is who he wants people to have faith in. Because Jesus Christ is the power of God. Paul has already laid that out. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the cross. Jesus Christ crucified is the power of God. Again, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the power of God. So we come to this fifth verse in chapter 2, and we can safely conclude that Paul's motive for both the substance of his message and the method of his delivery was so that his hearers would be people who place their faith not in man but in the power of God, the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Guys, this should be what drives us. This should be our motivation. Why should we go to campus and share the gospel? Why should we think about going downtown and starting conversations with strangers and then doing it? Why should you seek to tell your friends, your classmates, your coworkers, and your family members the gospel? Why? So that their faith would rest in the power of God and Jesus Christ. We need to be people concerned with the salvation of people's souls. Paul wanted people to be saved in Jesus Christ. Do you? Do I? That's what we need to be about. We need to be about that work. The entire purpose of this whole passage relies on this last verse. Both the message of Jesus Christ crucified and the method point to this specific goal of seeing people come to salvation. There's only one message that tells people to place their faith in Christ, not in man. There's only one gospel. There's only one way to do this. And we have to do it the way it's been prescribed for us by teaching the word of God because in it we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need to come up with some fancy way. We don't need to try to come up with a new way to present the gospel or a new idea of what the gospel means because it tells us what the gospel means. If we try to do it another way, we're going to get away from the gospel. You're going, to go, you're going to depart from the true gospel. You try to think, oh, maybe if they hear it this way, instead of what the Bible says, they'll come to faith. No, they're not going to come to faith in the real Christ then. We use God's word to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Really, as I was thinking about this, these five verses can be summed up in one of the coolest verses in all of Scripture, which... If you've been around much, you've probably heard Romans 1.16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul, unashamed of the gospel, unreservedly preached the gospel, and only the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And we have to ask ourselves as we come to the end here, is this where we're at? Is this what you see as the purpose of proclaiming and sharing Christ? Think about the application of the text in your lives. I hope it's been clear to you from the three points that we looked at that there is application for us. If you've missed it somehow, please listen up. Just one more time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you. First, we speak of and proclaim the testimony of God and the testimony of God alone, resolved to know only Jesus Christ crucified as the means of salvation. Second, we use God's word, trusting that the Spirit will work in the hearts of men. And third, we are motivated to see people's faith put in Christ, not in man. That's what we take away from this. This is the mindset of a minister as he goes to share the gospel. As you and I engage the world, this is the mindset we must have. And so we have to ask ourselves, is this where I'm at? Guys, if it's not, ch change. <laughs> change your mind on this to know this is the message we have, the glorious truth of Jesus Christ, and I can bring this to the world. And in there, there's demonstration of spirit and power, and people come to faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for what you have revealed to us. And God, I pray that our hearts would be changed to be in line with what this passage speaks about. God, may we know Jesus Christ and him crucified only, proclaiming the testimony of God in demonstration of the spirit and power with our hearts set on seeing people come to faith in Christ. Lord, make that our, our desire as we're in the world, as we're in the workplace, as we're among classmates, as we're with teammates, um, family members, whoever it is, Lord, help us. God, strengthen us to want to preach the gospel. This is a message too good to ignore. This is a message too great to not speak of. Lord, place that heavily on our hearts that we may go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.